Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I have something new to tell you. Hi, it's Keith from the Book of Constellations. I want to invite you to my new podcast called The First Episode Of. It's a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. In each show, I listen to the first episode of an indie audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, their struggles, and successes. It's a great conversation for anyone interested in storytelling and creativity. And with so much talent and variety out there, you're sure to find your next favorite audio drama by listening. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts or at thefirstepisodeof.com. Come listen. And don't forget to keep spreading the word about the Book of Constellations. And consider making a donation at glow.fm slash bookofconstellations. Thank you. Enjoy today's verse. Listeners are advised there is a moment of graphic violence in this episode. The Book of Constellations Written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms Chapter 1, Verse crowd is closing around Rael, and there's no way I can get to him before he reaches the stage. One of the last things he said to me of Pilot Quaid was, The darkness has him. He must be stopped. I don't know whether the darkness has Quaid or not. I don't have Rael's way of looking at the world. But Quaid's speech did something to this crowd. His words reached inside their minds. They didn't just succumb to fear and anger. They embraced them. They are a mob, ready to fight for Quaid's god and Quaid's country. And now Rael is in the middle of them, in the crush of triumphant raised fists and waving flags, going to confront the man himself, still on the stage. There's no way people aren't going to notice him. The police at the edge of the park might see him. With Satya with us, we can't afford any police scrutiny. But my immediate worry is the people... I'm noticing that among the crowd, there's more of those militia types we saw at the library, with their guns and mismatched body armor. The whole place feels like a dry forest, soaked in gasoline, just waiting for a match. I call to Rael, but my voice is lost in the crowd. They're all around me, jostling and cheering. I'm losing sight of him in the swaying, shifting bodies. I catch a glimpse of him as he maneuvers his way with unrelenting purpose to the edge of the stage. He's still staring at Quaid, who is wrapping up his basking time, giving a few last waves and a God bless or two. And then for a second, Quaid meets Rael's gaze. The pundit pauses, his smile freezing, 
touched by uncertainty. They stare at each other, probably not even long enough for most people to notice. But then Quaid turns away and heads for the wings. Rail follows along the front of the stage. I think he means to go around to the backstage area where there are event organizers and police waiting. The crowd is thick there, and he's too far ahead of me. So I try going around the other way, limping past huge speakers that blare somebody's version of God Bless America. I've been up for too long, but there's nothing to be done about it now. Behind the stage, there's an area cordoned off with simple wooden barricades. A few VIPs mill about in there, turning as Pilot Quaid descends the steps to congratulate him. There's an idling sedan with tinted windows nearby, big beefy guy leaning against it. Quaid's right, I guess. Maybe a bodyguard, too. About 20 yards away is a police car, its blue lights strobing, its owner in the street directing traffic along the detour. There's a small cluster of autograph seekers and well-wishers pressed up against the barricade, and I have to work my way past them. There's a little knot of militia boys nearby, too. Suddenly, I see Rael, his expression fixed and grim, gray like a ghost, his long hair hanging in his face and over his sunglasses. And before I can say anything... He ducks the barricade, walking straight toward Quaid. A few bystanders react with alarm, but he's already right up into the important people surrounded Quaid in their dark suits and flag pins. The woman with too much eye makeup starts to confront him, a mix of fear and disgust on her face, but Rael ignores her. One of the men places his hand on Rael's chest, saying something about how he can't be back here, but he too might as well not exist for Rael. He moves right up to Pilot Quaid and says, Is it enough? Quaid smirks, surprised, smug. Beg pardon? Will it ever be enough? There's maybe half a second when the question seems to resonate with Quaid, or at least give him pause enough to frown, but then he just snorts and steps away. The bodyguard is moving toward Rail now. The VIP man is starting to push Rail back, though he doesn't seem to be able to move him much. The woman starts to cry, shrill. You shouldn't be here. You need to leave. You shouldn't be here. The crowd is starting to pick up on the agitation, and let's face it, Rail doesn't look like they do with his strange complexion and ragged clothes. A couple of the militia types, in the throes of Quaid's speech, take it upon themselves to defend their leader. They duck the barricade, rushing toward Rail, grabbing his arms and shoulders. There's a crescendo of anger spreading through the crowd. More people stare his way, hate and fear in their eyes, about to rush in. Out on the street, the cop directing traffic turns toward the noise of the mob. Suddenly, the piped-in music goes out, and a cacophony of electronic noise rolls across the town square. An insane mix of electronic chimes, bells, and snippets of songs, repeating over and over. It's so sudden and so unusual, almost everyone is startled into stillness as they realize what's going on. Everyone's phone is ringing. I mean, everyone. People are reaching into their pockets and purses, puzzled, staring at their screens. Murmurs start circulating through the crowd, voices mystified. A few people answer. There's halting conversations springing up. Now, I can't afford one of those smartphones, so... I got an old beat-up flip phone thing, but it too is ringing. No, I don't answer it yet. Pilot Quaid, escorted by his driver, gets into the back, and I see him pull out his own phone and frown at the screen before the door closes. The men manhandling rail are dismayed by the confusion around them, 
and Rael shrugs them off to duck under the barricade and walk toward Quaid's car, slower this time. But the car pulls away before he gets too close, and he just watches it drive off. I finally answer my phone. Hello? Simon? Satya? What's going on? My phone started ringing, but when I answered it, I heard it calling... you, I guess? I don't know, but we need to go. Is Rael okay? Yeah, I think so. If I can get him out of here before he attracts more attention. Head back to the RV. We're coming, okay? You better be. I hang up and go to Rael, who is still looking off into the distance where Quaid's car had left. Rael, I say, we have to go. Please. He nods once. All right. We start walking with more than a few eyes on us. The militia shout threats at us, but don't pursue. I ask him, Well, um, is he? You know, taken by the darkness? He's quiet a long time before he answers. Yes. But he doesn't sound convinced. I found out much later about all those ringing phones. <laughs> it's taken on the qualities of an urban legend. Getting more outlandish every time I hear people talking about it now. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure no one was patched through to the Queen of England or to the President, nor to Alpha Centauri or to the Ghost of Elvis. But they were connected to telephone numbers all over the world. Some people found themselves talking to relatives they hadn't spoken to in years. Other people were put through to the offices of churches, synagogues, or temples, to retirement homes and veterans' organizations, to complete strangers in other countries that didn't speak a common language, to schools and libraries. Of course, no one on either end knew what was going on. A lot of people didn't answer their phones, others hung up pretty fast. I don't know that many people followed through on any of these strange connections, but I kind of hope that they were a little reminder to everyone that day that they're part of a larger world. Satya is still by the tree, waiting for us, understandably agitated. I fill her in on the way to the RV. Once inside, I say, Okay, I think we should leave town. I can probably hold on for a couple more hours more at least before I need a rest. Satya is watching Rael. I think she's a little alarmed by the sudden and singular purpose that came over him back there. But at my suggestion, she sighs. Uh, I thought we were going to stop, but I guess a couple more hours is okay. No, says Rael. There is a hotel near the interstate. We will go there. I'm not sure we should stay in town, Rael. I'm sure there's somewhere in the next town over that... No, he says. Go there. Then a little quieter, he adds. You both need a rest. I glance at Satya, and she smiles at me pleadingly. Shower? She says. Two against one. Guess I'm outvoted. Should probably get used to that. But, in truth, getting some real rest sounds pretty nice. All right, I say. Rail nods. There is a reservation for a room in your name. I guess I've gotten used to things like that now because I don't even question him. The hotel is new. Growing up as I did, hotels like this one with big bright lobbies, fountains, and ballrooms were only something you saw in the cities. But now they're springing up on even little podunk towns and I don't know why. 
There must be a good reason for it, I guess. Like why they had a rally in this little town. It must be growing. I guess that's the way it goes. We just keep growing and growing. They come in and strip out the old trees, cut everything down to the dirt, build their buildings and parking lots, and plant a couple of stubby little new trees like that fixes everything. But that's the bottom line. Never-ending growth. Just like the cancer in my legs. The room is waiting for us. I park the RV in the back out of view of the main road. As soon as we're through the door, Satya calls. Dibs on the shower. There's two beds. I figure one for Satya, and Rail and I can share the other. Though I wonder if he'll actually sleep any. He settles into a chair, getting thoughtful and distant, like always. Me. I take an oxy, lay down, and sleep. When I wake up, it's evening already. Rahel and Satya are sitting on the other bed, her long black hair shining, her makeup carefully done. She's changed into jeans and an off-the-shoulder tee whose sleeves hide half her hands. Rahel's poncho is carefully draped over the back of a chair. She must have gotten him to take a shower recently because his hair is wet and she's combing it gently. This seems to neither bother nor please him, but he does seem a lot more relaxed. As I sit up, Satya says, Hey, how you feeling? Better, I say. You kind of forget how uncomfortable those RV cots are until you get to sleep in a real bed. Did you two get any sleep? Yeah, right after my bath. I only woke up about an hour ago. Good. Rael? Hmm? You okay? Yes, thank you. It's my turn to shower. When I'm all dried off and changed, I start the little coffee pot going and join them again. It's hotel room coffee, but it's coffee. Rail has moved back to the chair, looking out of the window. And Satya has a sketch pad and pencil out. I take a peek. It's a portrait of Rail. Now, I'm no art critic, but it's pretty good for a kid. She clearly loves that Japanese comic style. He looks a lot more handsome than he probably is. But she's got some talent, I think. So, I say, what's the plan? Pilot Quaid must be stopped. I take my little styrofoam cup of coffee and start the water going again, opening a tea bag for Satya. Stopped. I don't know what that means, Rail. He rises and begins to pace back and forth in slow, deliberate steps. You saw what his words did to the crowd. He speaks to an audience of millions every night. He has been pouring the darkness into their ears for a year now and will continue. The damage he does is worse than mere violence because it is insidious. It multiplies and radiates, and pieces of it linger in the mind. Okay, sure, he's a pompous bully who... Rail interrupts me. No, do not minimize him. He is dangerous. The darkness is in him, and he must be dealt with. Dealt with. People have the right to speak their minds, even if what's in their minds is backwards and hurtful. I know that something is going on here that is strange. And I remember what you showed us about the secret ashes file that might prove the governor is corrupted. But what about Quaid? How do you know? Couldn't he just be a terrible person? Rail grows still, head bowed. He says, I could tell you about the shadow I see in his eyes. That there is a subtle strangeness to his movements, hard to notice, that suggests his body is not his own. 
but let me tell you a story instead. My parent had a garden. By the time I was born, my people had poisoned the soil of their world. Like all things with the darkness, it was a slow, deliberate process. But the plants were dying. The rains were washing away the topsoil, choking the rivers, and filling the lakes with silt, which then poisoned the water. But there was one plant which not only resisted the toxins, but cleaned the soil it grew in. My parent and others like her cultivated gardens of them. There were not enough gardens to stop what had happened, of course, but they wanted to study how the plants purified the ground, perhaps find ways to mix them with crops or ground cover and bring us back from catastrophe, or use their genetics to pass on these qualities to other plants. I was still very small, but I remember walking through my mother's garden among the delicate drooping fronds and cream-colored blossoms. These plants were one of the few things left in our world that felt colorful and alive. But the darkness fell on one of us, a leader, a person much like Pilate Quaid. This person said the flowering plants were a fraud, that they were a symbol of resistance to our leadership, that they were a narcotic and dangerous. It was not long after that, when a crowd gathered at my parents' house, angry and afraid. They called her a traitor. They called her an addict. They stormed the garden, and in a frenzy, they uprooted every plant and crushed them under their feet. I remember staring up at a neighbor who used to look after me as she tore the delicate petals to pieces. It's for the best, she told me. Rail lifts his head to look at me through his sunglasses. Within weeks, the plants were gone, even in the wild. This is not a difference of opinion, Simon. This is not free speech. He is hurting people, even those who adore him. I have read everything Pilot Quaid has written, seen all of his programs and appearances. He was a mediocre commentator who got where he is from his wealth, privilege, and a little personal charisma. But his popularity soared last year after he met with the governor. His rhetoric changed. He now tells people to fight against themselves, to oppose programs and ideas that make their own lives better, to trade a richer life for a fleeting feeling of victory. His show is wildly successful. The minds he poisons are myriad. Simon, I know you cannot see what I see, but listen to his words. Do you not know evil when it cries in your ear? I carry Satya her cup of tea. She's watching Rael with wide eyes. I can tell she feels for him. She doesn't need to be converted. And I guess I don't either, really. I'm just worried. I stand at the window with Rael a moment. Okay, I say. Okay, I get it. But that doesn't change the fact that he's a nationally known figure. And he's gonna have... I trail off because... Well, hell... What do I see parked in the lot outside but Pilot Quaid's car? I mean, there's lots of dark sedans with tinted windows, but it's his. I say to Rael, he's here. You brought us to this hotel specifically because he's here. Yes, 
Don't you think you should have told us? Satya comes to his defense, reaching out to lay a hand on his back. Hey, hang on, okay? It's why we're here, isn't it? Suddenly, I don't want my terrible coffee. You need to tell me these things, Rael. First you lead us to the rally, and now here? Would you have come to this hotel if I had? I... I don't know. It's a stupid move. Lots of people saw us. Quaid saw us. If we get spotted, the police will... He calmly says, When I met you, I asked you to come with me to fight the darkness, not run from it. He has a point. Okay, but... But, Rael, you saved me. You chose me, right? Do you trust me? Completely, Simon. Then trust me with everything. I can't protect you both if I'm in the dark. You're right. I am sorry. Okay, then. So, how long has Quaid been here? Most of the day. He has been meeting with the governor's supporters and strategists. He is at a fundraiser dinner in one of the banquet halls right now. So what's the plan? They are almost done. Then we will have words with Quaid. Satya sips her tea. Dinner sounds good. What? I'm starved. The hotel's business center is really nothing more than a small room with a copier, printer, and extra power outlets. However, it does have a partitioned-off area with a work table that's hidden from the lobby. A couple of large windows look out onto the parking lot, but with the lights off, no one should be able to see inside. The dinner is over. Everyone except Quaid is left. He's standing at the edge of the lobby, frowning at his phone, when Satya walks up to him. Excuse me, Mr. Quaid? He gives her a quick once-over, lets a little sneer form on his face before covering it with a practiced smile. Yes? Sorry to bother you, sir, but your driver had to leave due to a personal family emergency. What? He looks back to his phone, starts tapping on the screen. Satya presses on, blithe, breezy. She's really good at this. We're very sorry for the inconvenience, but I'm here to replace him. He's still poking at his phone. I don't see any... Oh, wait. Here's an email. Quaid reads and then seems to accept this. All right, but you're my replacement? Yes, sir. Sorry, but I was the only driver available on such short notice. I have your full itinerary, and we still have time to make it to the airport. Eh, all right. Fine. Let's go. Just one tiny thing. All I need is your initials on a driver transfer form. Here, let's go to the business center. Is this necessary? Can't we do this in the car? I have it waiting. Won't take five seconds, sir. Promise. She brings him inside. The lights are already out, the only illumination streaming in from the parking lot lamps. By the time they round the partition to the work table, I've closed the door. Rail is waiting for him, sitting cross-legged on the table. Quaid figures out he's been had fast, shooting a glance at the exit, which is blocked by me and Satya, before rounding back to Rail. You were at the rally. He says, what do you want? Rail is almost completely motionless, a silent gray shadow watching him. Quay doesn't care for the scrutiny, takes out his sneer again and says, you three are in such trouble. The charges you're going to face, I smirk a little. Yeah, people keep telling us that, but here we are. Look, we just want to talk. You'll be talking to my lawyers. 
all of them. I have a battalion, mine and the networks. You think you can just... Rail cuts him off. Do you know what you're doing? He stares at Rail incredulously. What? Do you know what you're doing? Quaid's eyes narrow. I try to look for the darkness in that gaze, like Rail said he saw, but I don't know what to look for. The room is dark, and it's hard to tell anything. You tell me if I know what I'm doing. I have the second highest rated talk show on the planet. I have millions of fans make millions of dollars for myself and the network. I eat at a new restaurant, and the tweet storm breaks the damn internet. Rail says, and yet, it's not enough. When you have the most popular show, and the adulation of the planet, and all the money, you will still, somehow, feel like people are mocking you. That they're somehow better than you. If your show fails, as your first two did, then you feel like you fail. And your imagined enemies are right. You will say and do anything to find a new enemy to hate. Because if you don't, then all that is left is you. You are trapped. That must be a very hard burden to carry. I can't tell if Rail's words affect him or not. Quaid has made an armor of his arrogance. What do you know about it? I know your father was disappointed in you. Oh, that one landed. Quaid flinches just a little. What? Go to hell. You were taking journalism classes and getting mediocre grades. He put a lot of pressure on you to be great and withheld his affection when you weren't. Like the time he promised you an interview with a Washington paper. But when you got a B in a political science class, he took it away. Even in this dim light, I can see the color drain from Quaid's face. How, how did you know that? That following week, you wrote an incendiary op-ed in the school paper about the poli-sci department. It was factually inaccurate, but it had well-written insults and a clever sense of humor. It resonated with a lot of students. You became more popular. And my teacher was denied tenure that year, too. Yes, says Rael. Dr. Gomez was denied tenure, even though the things you said about him were largely untrue. I wonder if this was when you learned the key to your success. What do you think that is? That it is better to have a loud opinion than an informed one. Which is why I must ask you again. Do you know what you are doing? And at this, Rail rises smoothly from his cross-legged position to stand on the table. Quaid takes a step back, alarmed. Rail is calm, walking to the edge, standing over him. In your speech today, you talked about immigrants... Outsiders. You named them as enemies. You called them a threat, an invasion. How do you know? Oh, I see where this is going. Don't bring up this racism nonsense again. I'm not. How do you know? He repeats and drops down to the floor with perfect balance, inches from Quaid, close enough that the man can see his face reflected in Rail's dark lenses. Rail says, let me show you. Come with me. Quaid frowns. What? This is the first I've heard of this, and I hate this idea. I check in with Satya, but she shakes her head at me faintly. She doesn't know either. Rail repeats. Come with me. Let me show you these people you call enemy. The migrant work camps. The markets and communities. The immigration jails set up near the borders. Come and see 
Quade stares in flinty silence as Rael extends his hand to him. And then he says, No. Come with me and let me show you the truth. You want us to hate them. Why won't you go and see the truth with your own eyes? Because I don't have to. Now, I have had enough of this freak show. Get the hell out of my way. He turns to go, but Rael grabs his forearm, holding him in place. Quaid struggles, but he might as well be trying to pull his arm out of concrete. Okay, that's assault. You're going to prison. Rael's brows are knit, his expression turning urgent, almost desperate. Please, just come with us and see. Screw you! Quaid reaches with his free hand for something inside of his coat. Too late, I realize what it is. A step in front of Satya. Quaid brings his pistol out, lifts it up, pointing at the ceiling, but only for now. Let. Me. Go. When I think about what happened, I am sure that I didn't hear the gunshot. But I did see a muzzle flash from the overgrown hill that abuts the parking lot right before the window exploded into millions of jagged fragments. The shot hits Quaid in the hand, the one holding the pistol. He cries out. The weapon goes flying, along with two of his fingers. Rail's face, glasses and all, are misted with blood. There's a moment of shock. Then... Rael lets Quaid go, and he falls to the ground, clutching his ruined right hand. Rael stares down at him, looking lost and confused. Stop, he says, though I'm not sure to who. I push Satya down behind the partition and call to Rael, Get away from the window! But he doesn't move. He turns from the writhing Quaid to the parking lot. Stop! Every light in the hotel flickers, sputters, and goes out. The copier and the printer make strange whining noises, then go dead. A heavy silence rolls over the hotel. Even the air conditioners are out. Rail sinks back against the table, swaying uneasily. And then they come out of the trees, from the overgrown hillside, between cars and the parking lot. Soldiers dressed in the gray hexagon pattern of the Theta group. They're wearing masks, carrying weapons. Must be a dozen of them converging on the hotel. Rail slumps forward like he's dizzy. Stop, he whispers. Stop. The Book of Constellations is written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms. Music in this episode featured Songs for a Sad Guitar by Rest You Sleeping Giant and Tired of Life by Maydan. Links to both artists can be found on our webpage, bookofconstellations.com. Additional music by Free Sound Collective. The theme is Cycles by Pictures of the Floating World. If you're enjoying the story... Share it with a friend. See you next verse.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.